your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth and a great nation where it's a terrific thing that occasionally even people who are greatly respected, enormously influential, and extraordinarily insightful about the issues of our time can admit from time to time that they're wrong. Uh, they're doing a clever thing over at the New York Times. They've asked their leading columnists to focus on one mistake that they've made that they regret. And Brett Stevens, who is one of my favorite columnists in the country and who I find consistently spot on with a lot of his prescriptions and observations about our times, now has a piece coming out in the Times, I was wrong about Trump voters. And he begins by simply fessing up. He writes, the worst line I ever wrote as a pundit, yes, I know it's a crowded field, was the first line I ever wrote about the man who would become the 45th president. Quote, if by now you don't find Donald Trump appalling, you're appalling. Okay, Brett, uh, what was so wrong about that line? Well, I conflated... Um uh, Trump with, uh, who's, who's a guy with a certain set of views, uh, with um, millions of supporters who had various reasons for um, uniting uh, behind him, um, not all of which um, uh, were reflected in the man himself. And in doing that, I, I think, blinded myself to the reason that he was able to generate the support he did within the Republican Party and then obviously go on to win uh, a national election. So as, um, as I think I said in the piece, I, it, I found myself caricaturing them and stereotyping them and at the same time uh, blinding myself to a lot of what was happening in the United States that in my comfortable, protected life I wasn't, I wasn't really seeing. I think that people are going to read this piece and uh, give you all kinds of kudos and respect for the acknowledgement of the, the distance that uh, many people feel between ordinary, hardworking, middle-class and working-class Americans and people who live in a fairly privileged and uh, isolated sometimes world of uh, media and scholarship and uh, academia and uh, so forth. However, I want to go back to the, the first line you, you used and you quoted from. It was from August of 2015. So this was very, very early in the process of Trump running for the presidency. And as you probably recall, and I very much recall because I was also very early on and very negative about President Trump, one of the things that I was most negative about was his harping so incessantly on the birther lie, the idea that Barack Obama was not a U.S. citizen, that he was not a legitimate president, that he'd actually been secretly born in Kenya and uh, which I thought was incredibly destructive and embarrassing for the conservative cause and the conservative movement. And uh, I also don't believe that, that Trump even believed that 
lie for a moment and that he was acting like a, a, a snake oil salesman, a con man, and that people... So what do you say if, if you believe that uh, and you're sympathetic for people who are taking in by the con, what's the best way to try to pre pre prevent people from actually being taken in by deliberate lies and distortions? Look, I mean, as I said in this article, I take nothing back or almost nothing back in terms of what I wrote about Donald Trump himself. I think he was immensely destructive to the conservative movement that I've always felt I was a part of. I thought he was, a, by and large, a terrible president, even when I agreed on one point of policy or another. And I think the legacy of uh, his behavior in the 2020 election and then beyond that on January 6th is, makes him probably the worst president in the United States. But the, the point I'm making is not about Donald Trump, the man. What I, the point I was trying to make is the way in which I caricatured his supporters in suggesting that, the re, that they supported not just him in general, but by, in effect, they supported every aspect of his personality, every part of his program. And that's, I mean, I think you and I know many Trump supporters who will tell you quite frankly, um, you know, I can't stand the guy. I don't like his manner. I think his policies are really destructive. But someone, in effect, had to set off a kind of um, uh, an explosion of sorts in a uh, failing status quo, and Trump seemed like the guy to do it. Um, and that that was the point that I was trying to make. They had... They had reasons for supporting him that were often more sophisticated, uh, more nuanced than, than the man himself. And I didn't want to kind of reduce—my mistake, I think, was that I reduced them to effectively an identity with the candidate. There are a lot of Republicans who don't agree with everything. The Republican Party platform, same goes for Democrats. A lot of Democrats who feel the party has moved too far to the left or hasn't moved left enough—, um, enough. Um, and the fact that you vote for someone or for, for a party does not make you identical to everything that party stands for at the moment. And so I thought I was looking back. I just thought I was grossly unfair to millions of Americans who should not have been treated as moral ignoramuses. You have a, a terrific passage in, in the column, which is an extraordinary column, and it's a, a great piece of work, uh, Brett, and I appreciate your sharing it with us. But uh, you write, when I looked at Trump, I saw a bigoted blowhard making one ignorant argument after another. What Trump supporters saw was a candidate whose entire being was a proudly raised middle finger at a self-satisfied elite that had produced a failing status quo. Uh, that, I think, uh, is a powerful point. At the end of your piece, you ask yourself a question, and it's an important question, which is, uh, uh, okay, uh, in terms of voters today, after everything we know about Trump, would you uh, be more gracious to them, uh, giving them uh, more than the benefit of the doubt? A final question for myself, you write, would I be wrong to lambaste Trump's current supporters, the ones who want him back in the White House? Uh, what do you say? Well, what I said in the column was that from a certain point of view, no, because, you know, what we now know about Trump is what is different from what voters knew 
in in 2016. At the time, they were taking a bet on um, on a character who was supposed to shake up the status quo. Now they'd be voting for a guy who tried to destroy American uh, democracy, and I think that's very different. But what I do say in the column is that I would, um, as a columnist, I think I would try to approach the question very differently than the way I did it. First of all, you don't win over many people by by um, uh, basically uh, uh, um, insulting them. Um, and I think we need to have a different kind of conversation. You know, for a lot of Trump supporters, they will say, yeah, I get it. He's bad, but every election is essentially a binary decision. It's a choice between evils. So bad as Trump is, um, I would um, I would vote for him because I can't stand the, the woke left or, or, or socialism or the, the abolish the police movement, you know, all the rest of it. And what I would try to say is without um, insulting their intelligence or insulting their, their, their sense of morality, that what, what happened on January 6th was, was very serious, was very real. Um, and if, we, uh, if we're going to have a country in which power passes peacefully from one party to another, we have to choose a different way. So okay, if we, really can, if we can continue talking about that different way, particularly for the Republican Party coming up, it would be my privilege to do so with uh, Brett Stevens, his dynamic and important column, I Was Wrong About Trump Voters. We'll be right back. and courage, those are two alliterative words that uh, I believe can easily be applied to my very distinguished guest. Brett Stevens uh, is a columnist for the New York Times. For those of you who don't know, he also engages with a much more liberal columnist, Gail Collins. They have a conversation every week in the Times, which is very amusing uh, because they kind of take shots at each other, and it's great. But uh, he has done a most recent column taking a shot at himself. The title is I Was Wrong About Trump Voters. And I think he speaks for a lot of people who basically uh, assume that uh, Trump voters were all, oh, like that uh, QAnon shaman that uh, showed up on, on January 6th. That, that was not representative of the 74 million people who voted for President Trump for president uh, and his re-election. In terms of re-elections coming up now, uh, having learned what you, the lessons that you elucidate in the column, Brett, uh, what should the Republican Party do to keep in mind that um, there are, a majority of Americans are desperately looking for an alternative to both Biden and Trump? Uh, where should the Republican Party look? Well, I hope it doesn't look to Trump again um, uh, for all the reasons uh, we, we, we um, hinted at uh, earlier in the segment. I think he's unfit to be president. I think he proved that abundantly on his, with his behavior on January 6th and lying about the results of the uh, uh, election. Um, but I think the party, the Republican Party, clearly needed a kind of a shake up from 
um, what it had become in the first uh, 15 years of of, uh, of this century. So it needs a figure who kind of combines some of the, in my view, good sense of the Reagan Republicanism, which was, for instance, friendly to immigrants, internationalist, strong when it came to uh, to to uh, foreign policy, um, but also isn't willing to be kind of sucked into the consensus view of the world when it comes to when it came to things like, for instance, the lockdowns with uh, um, with uh, COVID. Some uh, you know a voice that is going to speak up. Against um, against some of the excesses in ideological excesses in our schools, someone who's going to stand for public safety in a in a very clear clear way. And I don't know who that is, but you need something of the of the charisma of the farther right with the sanity of of the center right. What about uh, two names that have come up in conversation on this show before? are, uh, of course, the obvious name, Ron DeSantis, who's going to win a big, triumphant re-election for governor of Florida, and another governor, Glenn Youngkin, who has gotten off to a very good start in uh, Virginia and has the great advantage of actually being someone who seems fresh, younger, uh, new. Uh, do we need a breath of fresh air, maybe somebody who isn't uh, sort of worn out as welcome? already with the electorate? Well, De DeSantis, I think, has figured out uh, the kind of the golden triangle of the modern Republican Party, which is uh, he's just Trumpy enough in that he knows how to own the libs, as they say, um, takes on the media uh, in a very, the, the mainstream media, and often in a very aggressive but effective way. Um, he has, plays to the evangelical base of the Republican Party. Um, he did that with uh, with his attack on Disney, and Florida's booming. Uh, he's 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 made the state open for business, so that makes him a very effective candidate. Problem with DeSantis, just I mean, this is a kind of a uh, an impression from a distance, and I've never met the man personally. He seems mean. He he seems like just an angry dude. And maybe that's that's wrong, but that that's going to be an edge that he's going to have to soften uh, to win a general election. Youngkin, so far so good. His the strike against him is that he's a guy who was in private equity right up until um, a few years ago, and that seems a little bit out of step with the country. But he also could be quite effective. I think Nikki Haley could also be very effective, um, as could Senator Tim Scott. Yeah, so those are four names to reckon with. On the Democratic side, we all wish President Biden a speedy recovery and good health, but you don't wish him a second term. Uh, I mean, I certainly don't. Uh, is there a Democrat who is a, a logical and creditable and a benign replacement for President Biden? Well, it isn't Vice President Harris who I think even <laughs> even among most most uh, liberal Democrats I know doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. Um, I don't think um, Governor Newsom is the guy to do it for the Democrats. Way too deep blue state. Um, California is not exactly um, a thriving state. People are are fleeing it. Maybe Jared uh, Jared Polis. Uh, I don't know if it's Polis or Polis in. Uh, 
in Colorado. I think you need a purple state Democrat. Um, uh, the governor, uh, Roy Cooper of North Carolina, is a Democrat who's shown that he can win over red state voters, and that's going to be something the Democrats are going to need. If they go for someone very blue like Elizabeth Warren, um, they're going to lose very badly. Yeah, Jared Polis is also um, a married gay, uh, and which, of course, brings up Pete Buttigieg, who has uh, ran for president before, did well. Uh, it would be a problem if the Biden administration continues to look like the train wreck that it is. It probably would be a problem having a cabinet post with uh, with that crew, no? Yeah, um, I think among the members of the cabinet, the person I, I've, who's impressed me most is Gina Raimondo, the former too. Rhode Island governor um, with real executive experience and pro schools. Um, uh, but um, I don't think she could win the Democratic nomination. Pete, Pete, Governor Mayor Pete, kind of. I got the sense he sort of lost his sell-by date. Um, uh, he hasn't made that much of a mark as transportation secretary. Obviously, extremely well-spoken, but presidential, I'm not entirely sure. This country is going to be in a world of crisis, I think, in two years. My sense is we have an economy moving into recession. I don't see inflation peaking anytime soon. And the international situation is, is, is bleak and getting getting worse. I think people are going to want someone with deep executive experience and some age and wisdom. And uh, he's he's still 10 or 15 years away from that. <laughs> At least. Uh, Brett Stevens, his column, uh, we've um, posted our website, uh, a link to it. I was wrong about Trump voters. And by the way, great to see that you're your colleague in the conversation, Gail Collins, she said she was wrong about Mitt Romney. She picked on Mitt endlessly over his dog, uh, which was nasty. We will be right back. Brett Stevens, uh, have a wonderful weekend and a great rest of the summer. We will be back. Michael Medved show, there are warring uh, legal experts who uh, analyze what the prospects are for President Trump and for charges against President Trump, potential charges relating to uh, January 6th and a, a whole range of other issues uh, where uh, there has been attention focused on the president, uh, the former president. The uh, uh, there's a piece in Newsweek, and it's a big, huge, well-documented piece. It's uh, Will Trump Do Time, What It Would Take to Convict the Former President, and that features a picture of, <laughs> of President Trump in a locked prison cell in an orange suit, which uh, probably for a lot of Trump haters would uh, produce all kinds of smiles. But there's also Professor John Yu, who's written in the Boston Globe, who's going to be joining us later in the show, 
uh, saying straight out the January 6th committee has not made the case against Donald Trump. Uh, we'll be getting to that coming up. Uh, first of all, I want to try to get back to uh, a little bit about uh, what was unfolded last night at the uh, hearings. And again, I, th I think that the, for me, the, the biggest realization or revelation at those hearings was that the plan of uh, getting people to march up to the Capitol and even getting Trump to march up to the Capitol was mad. It was crazy. It was far-fetched. But it was not entirely impossible. And uh, given the idea that if the there had been an occupation of the Capitol building and there had been a president of the United States who was unwilling to deploy uh, military power and using the idea of posse comitatus, we're not supposed to use military power against civilians here in this country. And if uh, that occupation lasted and people stayed in the Capitol building and prevented uh, Mike Pence and Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell from reassembling the joint session of Congress to vote on the challenges that were being brought forward against the electoral votes in Pennsylvania and Arizona. If that had happened and that delay had happened, is it even conceivable that uh, that there there would have been some kind of dramatic measure like sending this to the House of Representatives? and uh, having the House of Representatives determine choosing the next president. It's all very far-fetched, but it, it seems to me more clear that what President Trump had in mind, and one of the reasons he had in mind to actually go to the Capitol building at the uh, together with the thousands of people he had commanded, was basically just to throw some doubt into what are supposed to be orderly and pro forma kinds of processes. Uh, this is uh, Representative Elaine Luria from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Uh, she was one of the two questioners last night, and I think she presented herself very well. She is, as I mentioned, a Navy veteran. She's commander in the U.S. Navy, served for 20 years, and she's also a very likely loser in the upcoming race for re-election because she's been redistricted into a district that is much more friendly to Republicans than to a moderate Democrat like Elaine Luria. But uh, this is uh, what she said about revelations based upon abundant testimony, and this from literally dozens of people who have sworn under oath, uh, about what the president was doing while a lot of his most enthusiastic followers were storming the Capitol building. Clip 7. From 1.25 until 4 o'clock, the president stayed in his dining room. Just to give you a sense of where the dining room is situated in the West Wing, let's take a look at this floor plan. The dining room is connected to the Oval Office by a short hallway. Witnesses told us that on January 6th, President Trump sat in his usual spot, at the head of the table facing a television hanging on the wall. 
We know from the employee that the TV was tuned to Fox News all afternoon. Here you can see Fox News on the TV showing coverage of the joint session that was airing that day at 1.25. Other witnesses confirmed that President Trump was in the dining room with the TV on for more than two and a half hours. There was no official record of what President Trump did while in the dining room. Okay, what they're talking about is usually they have a calendar, a daily calendar, where it says the president has an appointment to get his hair cut. I'm thinking about that because my wife cut my hair last night. Um, okay, the president has an appointment to get a haircut. He's meeting with the ambassador of Ireland. Uh, he is conferring with his staff. Um, he is on the golf course. Whatever it is, you know what the president is doing. This is literally, in four years, the biggest gap in terms of nothing. They say nothing. They, they say the president made his speech, he returned to the White House, and then nothing again until after, uh, well after four o'clock, when he began trying to tape his uh, message asking the demonstrators to go home. It was 187 minutes. And so what exactly was going on here? And it wasn't until the next day that he had a final statement uh, about the, uh, the riots and the conflict and the difficulty where he actually called it a heinous attack. And uh, here is President Trump in the outtakes from the White House again. We began giving a flavor of them of uh, the president trying to get right the message he wanted to send to America the day after January 6th. This is clip four. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent, you represent our country. And if you broke the law, can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results without saying the election's over, okay? Okay. <laughs> he, he still hasn't said that the election is over. But it manifestly is. Uh, there's uh, more. Uh, the, the day before, there's another outtake that was played last night. And this is from January 6th. This was something the president said as the Capitol was actually under siege, as people were fighting in hand-to-hand, -hand, as people said, medieval-style combat. And 150 cops were getting injured. Uh, this is what uh, President Trump, the message he sent out to uh, his followers and to the whole world. Uh, this during that time period where nothing was officially accounted for. And uh, by the way, the phone. We, and by by the way, the phone records show that uh, he was not on any official White House phone. Apparently, what happened is he borrowed phones uh, from folks and uh, was calling senators to try to urge them because they were still 
uh, waiting for the certification of the elections to fight that certification when the joint session of Congress resumed. We will get to that and get to the key questions that uh, were put forward by the people who led this committee. And what about the objections to the committee that it is so totally one-sided and with no chance at all for people on the Trump side of things to respond? Uh, we will get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. President Trump uh, on January 6th itself in the middle of the day when he finally uh, was paying attention after four o'clock in the afternoon. It was after three, more than three hours of sitting uh, and not leaving and apparently not removing his overcoat, uh, which he had worn to give the speech at the ellipse, the speech that has been gone over so many times. He came back to sit in the dining room and to watch live broadcasts on TV of the disruption and the battle and the the destruction of property that was going on in uh, the riots in the Capitol, on Capitol Hill, which is, what is it, it's a little bit more than a mile away. The uh, Trump uh, outtake, this was as he was finally paying attention to Oh, people including um, uh, people on Fox News like Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity who were writing to Trump. His son, Don Jr., wrote to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, to try to get him to get his father to do something to ask them to go home. And so finally, he was ready to prepare a video like that, but it took several takes before he got it right. And this is what those outtakes sounded like. This is clip five. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. It was a landslide election, especially the other side. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We have to respect our great people in law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. This was a fraudulent election, but we can't play into the hands of these people. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. You've seen what happens. You see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil. I know how you feel. Okay, this was not acceptable. And uh, there was uh, one of the people who was questioned last night, one of the witnesses who was part of the White House staff, his name is Judd Deere. Uh, he was asked about 
if uh, these comments that were tape recorded, if they had been released, would uh, they have helped to calm things? And uh, he said, no, it would have been extremely unhelpful. This is like the first uh, text message that President Trump sent out, and it actually was a, 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 the equivalent of uh, a, it was a tweet because he was still on Twitter. And he sent out a tweet about Vice President Pence, and Vice President Pence lacked the courage to do the right thing. And this is at a time when people were already <clears throat> chanting, hang Mike Pence, and had set up a gallows uh, near the Capitol building for that purpose. Now, I'm not sure those gallows actually would have worked. I'm not sure they would have done a hanging, but <clears throat> given the, the willingness of, of people in the crowd to use brutal violence against the Capitol officers. They were certainly prepared to do that to members of Congress with whom they disagreed. In any event, Judd Deere asked about what you just heard from the president, his original take on a message to people asking them to go home. He was asked if he thought that would be, have been helpful and would have helped brought peace, and he said extremely unhelpful. And uh, then later he said this was not the message we needed at that time. Uh, and nor is it the message we need at any time because it's, <laughs> it's provocative and untrue. Uh, there was also radio traffic that was astonishing involving the Pence Secret Service detail. And some of the members of the Secret Service detail assigned to Mike Pence were so sure that, that they were going to die that they called family members to say goodbye. Uh, listen, this is clip eight. If we're moving, we need to move now. Copy. Oh, 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 If we're moving, we need to move now. Copy. If we lose any more time, we may have, we may lose the ability to, Leave. So if we're going to leave, we need to do it now. They've gained access to the second floor, and I've got public about five feet from me down here below. They are on the second floor, moving in now. We may want to consider getting out and leaving now. Copy. Will we encounter the people once we make our way? Repeat. Encounter any individuals if we made our way to the to the. There's six officers between us and the people that are. Five to ten feet away from me. Yeah, I'm going down to evaluate. Go ahead. We have a clear shot if we move quickly. Clear. We're coming out now. All right? Make a way. And uh, they just barely, that before they had said they came within 40 feet of uh, the angry mob. And uh, actually, apparently, last night's testimony indicated they may have been even closer. And uh, in summing up everything that was presented last night, uh, Liz Cheney, who had the opportunity to speak last, she was presiding over the meeting because uh, Benny Thompson, the chairman, she's the vice chairman, was under the weather with COVID. Uh, she concluded this uh, two-and-a-half-hour session this way, clip nine. In our hearing tonight, you saw an American president faced with a stark an unmistakable choice between right and wrong. There was no ambiguity, no nuance. 
Donald Trump made a purposeful choice to violate his oath of office, to ignore the ongoing violence against law enforcement, to threaten our constitutional order. There is no way to excuse that behavior. It was indefensible. And every American must consider this. Can a president who is willing to make the choices Donald Trump made during the violence of January 6th ever be trusted with any position of authority in our great nation? And that's really the question. And that really is, it seems to me, the appropriate focus on as we continue this discussion. They can't impeach Trump again. Uh, they've already tried it twice. It was a bad move the first time. It was a bad move the second time. And that, despite the fact that, uh, oh, John Yu, a conservative law professor at University of California, says that Trump's offenses during January 6th were definitely impeachable. But he also says he's not going to be indicted, convicted, tried, go to jail. People who want that are looking at the wrong thing. And this is um, a, a basically goes back to what is always a good advice, uh, which is keep your eyes on the prize. Figure out what is the most important thing here. And the most important thing here, it seems to me, is to convince Americans, to convince Republicans that in terms of bringing this country together to protecting our economy, to trying to cope with inflation, which is paralyzing to people, to try to reduce the violence on the streets, to make progress against crime, to preside over the international arena and to help Ukraine win the victory that uh, they are anticipated to win, to perhaps make progress uh, as President Trump did when he was president toward the um, Middle East and the Middle Eastern situation for all of the manifest challenges that a new president is going to find is Trump based upon his behavior uh, on January 6th and since that time is he the right guy uh, is he someone that the country needs right now whose personality will allow him to help one of the things that struck me is I, I wrote a piece which is in our newsletter. You can go grab the newsletter as a subscriber about Trump's war against Mitch McConnell, which is so bizarre given the fact that Mitch McConnell protected him successfully from two impeachments and also sided with Trump, helped prevent the establishment of a, a bipartisan national commission. And so uh, Mitch McConnell, he says, is this the same Mitch McConnell who was losing big in Kentucky and came to the White House to beg me for an endorsement and help? Without me, he would have lost in a landslide, calls him a disloyal sleazebag. Not fair. And this greatest nation on God's green earth.